Greetings, friendlies. Welcome to Dharma PhD, conversations about the science, philosophy, and culture of mindfulness and secular Buddhism. I'm your host, Shannon M. Whitaker, joined by my fabulous co-host, Jeff Street. Welcome, Jeff. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's a pleasure to be here. Thrilled to have you. Are you kidding me? What are we going to talk about today? Today, you will not be surprised to learn, we will be talking about the third in a series of six talks given by John Peacock titled Buddhism Before the Theravada. Is that the title of this particular talk or this series of talks? That's the title of the series. Okay. Thanks for clarifying. Mm -hmm. I thought it might be helpful to list the points we've articulated so far from talks one and two. Yeah, a little refresher would be nice. Okay, great. Point one was that Siddhartha Gautama was not trying to start a religion, but rather a practical philosophy of human flourishing. Point number two was that Gotama was a social critic. His teachings were deeply engaged with his culture, and we should be deeply engaged with our culture. Mm-hmm. And point number three, Gotama's teachings are grounded in ethics. My favorite definition of ethics that we came up with was ethics as an exploration of discovering what behavior helps and harms sentient beings. Okay. Is there anything else that you think would be worth mentioning. That seems like a really good high-level summary. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Before we start covering the material from the talk, there's something else that I thought might be interesting to bring up. Right. For each episode, I think of a theme. And the theme isn't necessarily the name of the episode. In episode two, the theme was introduction. I wanted to give our listeners an opportunity to learn more about us, and particularly about my approach to the teachings And I used Peacock's talk as a way to do that. Mm -hmm. In episode three, the theme was ethics, which is in fact what we talked about. So does today's episode have a theme? Glad you asked. The theme for this episode is that in my opinion, the next step in human flourishing is learning to understand how our minds work. Okay. That sentence construction of saying the next step, is it important to understand it in the context of other steps? Yes, I think so. Do you remember we were in the park the other day talking with our friend Dan, and I was talking about Maslow's hierarchy, mm-hmm. and I'll put a link in the show notes to Maslow's hierarchy if people aren't familiar. And I said that, in my opinion, we've kind of figured out how to solve the bottom few levels of the hierarchy. You had mentioned Food, shelter, reproduction, that kind of thing. Right, right. Of course, there are great inequities, both domestically and internationally, with whether or not we have, in fact, solved those. But we've kind of figured out how to clothe people and how to house people and how to feed people. But despite that, we, particularly in the U.S., and I can say having lived in Western Europe, also Western European culture, we're still pretty unhappy despite having solved these base level problems of the hierarchy, we are still a grasping and anxious culture much of the time. And it seems to me that the next steps in understanding and moving towards human flourishing, I guess we used to think like, oh, if only everybody had a comfortable house. Oh, if only everybody had enough to eat. Oh, if only, and then we got there and we're still a hot mess as a society, (laughs) arguably. So it seems to me that the next steps are going to be found in these upper levels of Maslow's hierarchy, less about bodily needs and more about emotional and psychological needs, the stuff that minds are made of. So learning how to understand our minds is sort of the next step in human flourishing. Dan had said that we're trying 
to figure out the top levels of Maslow's hierarchy with a brain that evolved to solve the lower levels. Yeah, I remember that line. That's a good line. Yeah, that was very wise of him. Mm-hmm. I think that even understanding that is hugely important. Without understanding the details of what aspects of the mind, but just the idea that it's yeah. kind of geared for one thing. Right. And now we're trying to do another thing with that tool. Exactly. Because so many of us, right, wonder, why can't I just think my way out of my problems? Mm-hmm. I right? wonder that. Yeah. <laughs> I, try to, I try to do it all the time. <laughs> I won't ever learn. It's it's my, you know, that's my MO. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So all this to say, I believe that the next key in unlocking human flourishing is learning to understand our minds. How does that land for you? Is that interesting? Sold. Let's let's do it. (laughs) Tell me about my mind. Yeah, I do feel that way. I do feel sometimes as though I'm, I'm stuck inside a thing and I can't see it from the outside. Yeah, because you're inside of it. Inside of it. Yeah. And I think that's what you mean. Yeah, to yeah. some extent, yeah. Like tra- mm-hmm. I'm trapped in a myth. Yeah. And things are swirling around and the rules are like myth rules and they don't make <laughs> sense. It's like being in a dream a little bit. <laughs> yeah. It's so interesting that you say that. Okay, you probably don't know it, but you said something really interesting because that is what Gotama said our lives are like if we are untrained. Mm. It's like we're sleepwalking. Okay. So the goal of this whole practice is to wake up from this dream that you're talking about. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Very wise. He's a very wise person. No, I'm very wise. You're a very wise person also. <laughs> I mean, you know, this Gotama guy as well, but he's long in the past, whereas I am here in front of you right now. Yes, you're very wise. <laughs> See? Now we're working together. Yeah, let's talk more about this. So today we're going to talk about understanding the mind. And are you going to, we're going to do the whole mind today? This is the last podcast we're going to need? Oh no, man, wouldn't that be great? What are we going to, what are we going to do? <laughs> Well, I thought we might roll into material from the talk. Okay. As we mentioned, this is the third in a series of six talks by John Peacock, Buddhism Before the Theravada. There'll be a link in the show notes to the talk and a transcript, all that good stuff. And I highly recommend to listeners to go and listen to the talk. It's two hours. We will not be covering most of the material that he talks about. This entire series is just incredible. So please do go have a listen. Brief cliff notes of the talk. Peacock does happily talk about more translations that he considers to be flawed. And what we said last time is that rather than go through those per episode, we'll take a separate episode at the end and talk about them all at once, which will be a great joy to me. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be, it's going to be a test of endurance. I think I I imagine by the time we get there, we'll have quite a few translations collected. (laughs) For our listeners, Peacock talks about the five khandas or aggregates. Jeff, don't worry about what that is. Peacock gives his opinion on jhanas, which is that deep meditative state that I talked to you about. Mm. And what's interesting is that Peacock says he's not really into those, which I thought was cool because I remember now having listened to his talk and being like, oh yeah, the jhanas are not cool. And then I got into the jhanas and my default mode network shut down. I was like, this is so cool. So it's interesting to have heard from people like Peacock and Bachelor that this isn't that big of a thing, and then to have experienced it and be like, for me, actually, yes, it's a thing. Um, why, why, though? Why is that interesting? I say it's interesting because it feels to me that I am developing my own opinions and position in my understanding of the Dharma. 
when I can hear something from my teachers and say, okay, so that's how it is for you. It's quite different for me. And, and be excited and happy about that and not terrified or sad or anything. Does that make sense? Yeah. You're developing your own perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That feels really good. Yeah. You're synthesizing views from here and there. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. <laughs> put it together into a new kind of salad. Mix it around. <laughs> what else did you talk about? Then you talked about the thing we're going to cover today, which the poly word, pardon my poly, is tilakana. T- or mm. Talakana or Tilakanya, mm. I think is is the closest. Your accent work is, is very nice. Oh, it's I just been practicing. So, I have so much work to do. <laughs> it's, a, it's a process. It's yeah, a process. It is a process. We're starting. Mm. Mm-hmm. So the the marks of existence or the three characteristics are the way that this thing is translated. And before we jump into that, I wanted to frame the conversation and readdress something that we talked about offline. We've talked about the fact that the point of this podcast is not to teach you Buddhism. Me, Jeff, Buddhism. You, Jeff, Buddhism. Or anybody. <laughs> or anybody. Listeners, if that's what you think you're getting, again, <laughs> right in. Let us know how confused you are. So my goal is not to teach you Buddhism. My goal my is... My goal is not to learn Buddhism. So yeah. we're, we're on the same page Great. Here. We're on the same page. My goal is to share what I'm learning, why it matters, particularly in the light of understanding how our minds work in order to move towards human flourishing. And I found this quite challenging because if you were a practitioner, I would say, let's talk about the Tilakana. And you would say, yeah. And we'd run through some definitions and we'd regurgitate what we've heard people say. Maybe we debate the merits of various scholarly positions and it would be fun and very easy. And we would bring nothing new to the conversation whatsoever. We have a great time. We have a great time. Mm -hmm. But instead, the thing that I want to do is talk about, here's another pillar of Buddhism it's a well-supported, well-supported uh, plinth up there. But whatever Buddhism, let's look at your experience. Let's look at my experience and see if these claims that were made 2,500 years ago, do they still make sense in our experience today? And if so, how can we use that information in our lives? And if not, what do we learn from the exploration? Okay. So that's how I'd like to approach this section and, in fact, this entire podcast Great. (laughs) Sounds fine. That's what I signed up for. (laughs) So, Tilakana, Tilakana. I like how your accent is getting getting bolder. Oh, man. So frightening. So, this word is translated. We'll do a supercut later on of all your different accents. They'll come together and we'll see the progression as you become a real, real authentic speaker. Oh, man. So, the word is translated a few different ways. Three marks of existence, three characteristics of existence. I think the translation marks of existence, saying that there are characteristics that summarize what it is like to exist, I think that's too broad a claim. I think there's. It does seem almost useless. Yeah. (laughs) Right? There are things, period. (laughs) They have characteristics, period. (laughs) I think a better translation is something like. Three characteristics of human experience. As a human, our experience has these three characteristics. And I think that making a broader claim than that, saying that all of existence is like that, leans a little too far towards metaphysical, absolute kind of thinking. Let's uh, have a look at these, um, these characteristics, see how they feel. Okay. 
Cool. So we've got the three characteristics. I will list them along with my translations, and then we'll jump in one by one. First, the first characteristic is that everything in our experience is changing. Everything in our experience is changing. The second is negativity bias. For those practitioners who are listening, that's my translation of dukkha. And I'll talk about why I've chosen that translation and the third characteristic... So everything is getting worse if we put those two together. <laughs> I think we, we, we think, can get it down to two characteristics. We think that everything is getting worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> and the third characteristic is that there's no fixed essence to anything. Which kind How of... different than the first one? Yeah, exactly. Because they talk about the self, and it's a lot easier to say like, oh, everything is changing, except me. Oh, I, I, the constant, am moving through the world, unaffected by the chaos around me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure you are. So the first of the characteristics of human experience is that our experience is always changing. The Pali word for this is anicca. So does it mean our experience is always changing? That doesn't really mean that the world is always changing. Right. Or the external things, but that. Our experience, is that is it like our, our senses, our sense of things is mm-hmm. always changing? Yeah. The way that it's translated normally is the three marks of existence. Everything is changing. Mm-hmm. And I say, that's a little too metaphysical, a little too broad. What I can say is that everything in my experience is changing. Everything in the human experience is changing. So you just said that. You said like, oh, it's not the world. I'm talking about my experience of the world is changing. I guess I'm not sure what to do with that. Yeah. With that thing. Because we know from the second law of thermodynamics which is that things tend towards entropy, things tend to decay, things are moving from order to disorder. And so that means that, that as a whole, anyway, the universe is changing, always. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't feel like this addresses the second law. It's speaking more about mental states and perceptions and, mm-hmm. and things like that. Certainly, the guy who originally came up with the idea didn't know about the second law of thermodynamics. But those of us who... Mm, buy into this three characteristics, do say the science backs it up. The science says everything is changing. The problem is, is that we don't live from that place. We as humans live as if things are permanent. We live as if the this house is the we... Myth. This is a myth, right? Exactly. Okay. We live as if the house that we buy will always be in the condition it was when we bought it. It'll probably get better. Even. It'll probably get better. Yeah. <laughs> we live as if the person that we dedicate our lives to a partner will not change will not grow old will not grow sick will not die and well, when they we'll do podcast we'll not start a podcast se- several podcasts <laughs> and when they do some, some changes are great more, yeah. more podcasts <laughs> so that is it's all of that it's both the science of everything is changing and it is our experience is of change but we forget so it's a reminder. Except for the negative things, we remember those. That's I'm skipping ahead a little bit here. N- well, n- no, we, we forget that the negative things will change. It's why negative things can affect us so badly. I was trying for a negativity bias joke. Okay, you failed. Yeah. That's probably not nice to say. What's well, negative? Mm. <laughs> All right, so I'm on point. I actually covered this in a series in Buddha Bites, which was fun. I'll put a link in the show notes. And in that series, I broke up the concept of change into a couple of different episodes to cover like different aspects. The first was raw physical experience. So 
right now, your sense of sight, if you look at something, your head moves just a tiny little bit as you're sitting here. And as you're breathing, your head and your eyes are moving just a little bit. So your raw experience is always changing. With other senses, it's the same with sound, right? The sound of my voice, though it may seem as though it is going on forever, there actually are (laughs) pauses between the phonemes. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to differentiate them. It's not just a constant tone. Right. Mm -hmm. So the soundscape is constantly changing. Same with touch. Even if you're lying very still in bed, as you breathe, you're going to feel the bed touching you in different ways. The inside feelings of breathing, there's that rhythmic feeling of breathing. It's always changing. And so our raw data that we're receiving is constantly changing. That makes sense. Yeah. Then the second aspect is that things outside our direct raw experience are also changing. But we as humans aren't good at noticing this because of that change blindness phenomenon, that video that I showed you, where we watched over the course of 60 seconds, the entire room shifted. Oh yeah, it's a video. It's shot on a tripod Mm -hmm. and it's it's a living room. There's a couch and some cushions and a painting on the wall and a window. And it's it's just a camera looking at this. There's no people, there's nothing moving in there. But slowly, over the course of, I don't know, maybe one minute? I yeah, it was, the, the it was un- under 60 seconds. They do uh, like a selective, I don't know, a crossfade or something from one pillow to a completely different pillow on the couch. It's a yeah. different size, a different color. It's not like they just changed the color. It's completely different. Yeah. Same with the window. and um, The lights it, on the Christmas tree. Exactly. It doesn't all happen at the same time for each element of the room. Each element changes at a slightly different time. Uh-huh. So it's not like fading from one picture to another picture. It must have taken a lot of work to do. But I I didn't notice it. Yeah. Did you notice it the first time you saw it? No, no. The first time I saw it, I didn't see any of it. You had noticed a couple of changes in this particular video. I noticed a weird feeling. Yeah, uh uh-huh. I noticed something weird is happening. (laughs) But I I couldn't have told you, ah, they've changed the pillow. I couldn't have said that. And you might not have, if I hadn't said, hey, here's a video I want you to watch. Mm Mm-hmm. You might not have even... I might have just noticed that it's the world's boringest video and gone <laughs> on to the next one. Yeah. So we'll put a link in the show notes to this video, and I hope, I hope that people get to go and watch it. But this phenomenon of change blindness, humans are not good at noticing. This was under 60 seconds. It was maybe 45 seconds of shift. Short. And we aren't able to notice that because we have brains that are designed to notice lions running at us in the grass. That's why many animals, when they feel threatened, they just stop moving. Right. So all this to say that things outside of our experience are changing, but we don't notice it. And then we forget. In the podcast, I talked about getting a shiny red bicycle and we get it and we imagine that it's going to be this way forever. It's always going to be shiny and beautiful and it's always going to give us this rush of pleasure and it will never change, but it does change. It gets dirty and rusty and the tires go bald And it starts to please us less over time. We are less delighted by it. We have that hedonic treadmill type effect. Mm -hmm. And we forget that when we are charmed by objects in the world, it's going to, you know, be amazing forever because we forget that things change. And then the third aspect of change is that people change. We've addressed that. But on the most basic level, we are conceived as two cells and then those cells multiply and differentiate and we become babies and then we grow up and then we grow old. You know, we are constantly changing from a psychological standpoint. Our emotions can change like that. We can go from being perfectly contented 
to getting an email and flying into a rage and then pull up our Instagram feed and look at cute puppies and be joyous in the space of 90 seconds. And so our personality is constantly changing. What we know is changing. We're learning. We're forgetting things. All of these aspects of what it's like to be a human are changing. There's nothing that we can point out and say, this thing has never changed. And as you kind of mentioned, like, what do I do with that? That knowledge in and of itself may not be as helpful as realizing that we forget and that that forgetting causes problems. We forget that things are changing. Yeah. We forget that things are changing and we forget that things are going to change, that they're going to continue to change. We have this myth myth of the persistent self that, that, yeah, that we do operate under. Mm-hmm. And not just ourselves, right? Nations. We are the nation. Yeah. The nation is like this. If it changes, that's bad, or it shouldn't change. Looking back at history, there has not been a nation that has not undergone change. Well, except, except for periods when when the mythology shifts. Remember the, the romanticized version of going to the moon. What are we doing? We're changing. Mm. Improving. So there are times of stasis mm-hmm. and the mythology shifts mm-hmm. between the, the times of stasis and and growth or, or change celebrating mm-hmm. one one or the other of those things my understanding of that stage when america was going into space was that the myth the belief then was we are people who do this we are people who behave in this way and we will always americans will always be like this. Although like a reasonable interpretation. Yeah, yeah. Although the, the, it was about, Hey, we are people who are changing. It was, we are people who change things. And we, that is what it's like to be an American. See, that's what we're doing today. Yep. Who knows um, what it'll be tomorrow. Yeah. But we will always be mm-hmm. working to change, working to get into the stars. So I think there was a sense of that is who we as a nation are not. We are in a state that we will move through, but this is who we are as a nation. I think there was a myth there. Yeah. I wish it had been true. <laughs> Things might change again. Oh, they most certainly will, my friend. Moving on to the second characteristic. Negativity which, bias. Yes, negativity bias. And the word again in Pali. Dukkha. It's Pali. No, sorry, the A is long. Pali. Oh, yeah, your, your accent work is getting really, yep. I'm working on it. I'm just going to be insufferable to anybody. I'm at that stage of insufferability where... Like somebody first learns a little bit of Spanish or a little bit of French and like they just Or can't Latin stop. when you're in a science class and you start to learn Latin and then you start correcting each other. What? Latin is as much of a dead language as Polly. Nobody gets to correct anybody. The word sophomore <laughs> is really in top form. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I would say that is where my understanding is right now. It's pretty sophomoric. Don't tell my students that. <laughs> anyway. Dukkha. Yes. Here we go. Peacock says, in the very beginning of his talk, he says that he hopes to be controversial. Peacock hopes to be controversial. Yes. And And this really drew you in. Yeah. Yeah. It really drew me in. And I'd like to say here that I'm not hoping to be controversial, but I do think there are people who will take issue with this particular translation. In fact, there's a well-known teacher. His name is Lee Brasington. He's a dude who's really into the jhanas, that deep concentrative meditative state that I've talked about. And he and I were talking about it and he was like... Negativity bias is okay, but I wouldn't use it. And I was like, okay, we have a difference of opinion there. Are there ever like uh, debates amongst the various Dharma teachers? They square off and they uh, stand up there with two podiums and... 
certainly that's a huge part of certain traditions is debating. Okay. In the Zen tradition, it's a big deal. The Theravadan tradition actually came from a tradition of debate. And oh, that was a huge part of their tradition. Okay. And I believe in the Tibetan tradition as well, the debate is a huge part. In the West, I would say not as much of that. When I was at Zen Mountain Monastery, there was some debate that they staged. But it feels like the confrontational nature of those debates hasn't arisen quite as much in the West, I'd say. Can we look forward to an interview where Mr. Brisington joins you on the podcast and you you guys hash it out over this translation? No. Nope. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not interested in that. I'm not okay. interested in that. Let Sam Harris handle that kind of stuff. Somebody's on the case, you can do yeah, what you're doing. Yeah, that's exactly. Let's leave Sam Harris to be the snarky, uh, confrontational type. And okay. I'd like to be the, you know, let's find a happy middle ground. Here we type. go. So though there is some debate with this translation <laughs> of Dukkha, let's talk about the interpretation that you have, though, and let's delve into it a little bit. Thank you. Am, um, I, hosting, am I hosting a little bit too much No, you're, it was beautiful. I okay. really appreciate that. I mentioned earlier that the standard translation is suffering, mm. and many scholars think that this translation misses the point. Peacock says that he wants to naturalize the word Dukkha because suffering is an insufficient translation. He wants to naturalize this word. I think in the second episode, we briefly touched on dukkha, and you had asked me what it meant. And what I did, because I wasn't prepared to talk about it, was I parroted what Peacock and Bachelor say about it. Okay. I had said, oh, it's a spectrum term, and it means anything unpleasant, can go anywhere from being a little too cold to intense tragedy, suffering. And it was interesting because while I was editing the audio for that podcast, I was really disappointed with myself about what I said to you. Oh, you punted a little bit. Yeah, because it's not how I think the term should be translated, actually. Because in a previous conversation, casual conversation, you had shared with me the idea that dukkha was negativity bias. I don't think we'd done it on the podcast before. I found it really appealing, though. I found it really, I found it more useful Okay. than suffering. Okay. Because, like, everything is suffering. Mm, sad trombone. Do we have sad trombone on the soundboard here? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're welcome, listeners. And what do you do with that? Yeah. But negativity bias is interesting. It's something that we can say, ah, this is a characteristic of our perception. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And we, can, we can know that if there is an objective reality, mm -hmm. probably some debate on that point as well, but if there is an objective reality, it's Maybe a little better than we perceive it. <laughs> it, yeah. it seems like there's some hope to be taken. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, from this idea. Another aspect of why I like negativity bias is it takes some of the blame away, for mm. me personally anyway. Mm -hmm. When I say something like, oh, this is how my brain is wired. It's no longer, I'm a terrible person for not being able to appreciate this beautiful day because something bad happened earlier and now I look outside and I'm like it's so beautiful <laughs> right. or, or a, thing, a thing happened I perceive it to be negative and that's just how the brain goes yeah exactly and we don't have to lay blame it's no longer this original yep. sin it's yep. no longer it's Good, your fault original sin yeah yeah it's just how it is that's how it goes yeah hmm? would it be helpful do you think for listeners to talk about what negativity bias is briefly sure okay yeah let's do a little segment on okay. that okay so, we, listeners, we don't have theme music ready for this one. Sadder Bone, I think, is all we're going to get in this episode. <laughs> so bear with us. Well, there's the ukulele in between sections, so there is okay. there's always ukulele. Okay, but not like for this segment. Right, we haven't ginned have. up like a, a special... No. Mm -mm. Okay. 
So negativity bias, I know you've been dying to find out. Negativity bias is the phenomenon that humans are more sensitive and responsive to unpleasant stimuli, whether physical sensations or mental events, than we are to pleasant stimuli. And if you think about it, this makes super sense. You and I, Jeff, are sitting here in this room, fairly comfortable, fairly well-fed. Well-rested. <laughs> Both of us have had nice naps today. Oh, yeah. It's a, good, it's a good nap day here. So we're mostly pretty comfortable right now. Now, if I were to lean over and poke the back of your hand with a pin, 99.9% mm -hmm. .9 of you would still be fine. Right. But you wouldn't notice that anymore. The thing you would notice was that you were being stabbed in the back of the hand with a pin. So it seems like negativity bias might encompass two things. It might encompass, at present, at a certain moment, mm -hmm. we have a number of stimuli that are coming in. Yeah. Right? A pleasant temperature, mm -hmm. a comfortable chair, mm -hmm. good company, Aww. and and a pinprick. Yes. And so the one we focus on yes. is, let's make that pain go away. Yes. Or, may, or maybe that's going too far. The one we focus on is the pain. Yes. Perhaps for the reason of getting it to go away. Exactly. But then also, might it also be uh, a fair characterization of negativity bias to say that through the course of a day, many events will happen and, and some will be positive, 50 will be positive and 50 will be negative. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, maybe more, maybe 99 will be positive and one mm -hmm. will be negative. Yeah. Might be a, a more parallel example to the pinprick. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, when we reflect back, what was today like? Mm -hmm. This one negative thing happened will maybe dominate our perception of the day. Are, are both of those fair characterizations? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah. And are there, are there people, others that are along those lines? No, I think those are the two main ones. This idea of in the moment, especially physical things will distract us. And also that mental events. The way I often talk about the mental aspect is we have a house that keeps the rain off. It keeps the cold out. We have hot and cold running water. We have things that a thousand years ago, people would have said, if we could just have these things, everything would be fine. That's not even fair. There are people alive today who probably say, man, you know what I would really love is water without worm eggs in it. So we've got all this amazing stuff. We've got technology that mostly works. We've got sad trombone. Yeah, it's good technology. <laughs> but one thing happens, right? The battery is starting to go on my iPhone. First world problems are a beautiful example of negativity bias. Yeah. From the standpoint of evolutionary psychology, negativity bias makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. You had mentioned if I'm sitting here and everything's fine, but something stabs me in the hand, that's where my attention should go. Right. If a bug is biting me, if, if uh, being, something yeah. larger is biting me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the thing you want when you're being chased by a lion is not, oh, look at how. Look at the sunset. The sunset is oh, so beautiful. All the flowers smell great. Yeah. The thing you want to do is running. <laughs> yeah. Nothing but running. <laughs> nothing but running. We'll come back. We'll look at the flowers later. Running. Yeah, if, if we're lucky, yeah. Yeah, you want to see not only if a thing is biting you, but if it looks like a bite might be coming up. Yeah, and you're going to live longer if you think a bite is coming. Mm -hmm. If you're anxious, right. if you are hyper aware, you're going to live longer. for, what, what is that? It's called a, a false positive? Yes, if the penalty for a false positive is low. Mm -hmm. We look at the world and we, we say, ah, a bite is coming, yes. but we're incorrect about that. Yeah, the penalty low is penalty. low, yes. Mm -hmm. But if we look at the world and say, no bite, and we get bit, and we die. That's a false negative. Yeah, so the penalty for false positives is low. Penalty for false negatives, negatives is high. And that leads us to 
imagine bites when there are no bites. Yeah. It leads us to be beings who are anxious. If you watch birds in the park, they'll come down, they'll land, they'll peck around a little bit, but then they'll stop and they'll look around. Mm-hmm. And then they'll go bite to pecking and they'll stop and they look around. And if, and if a person who is uh, well-intentioned, for example, and is walking slowly, comes towards them, they'll often go out of the way. Yep. They'll move yep. away mm-hmm. just because you never know. Because you never know. Yeah. And this is a good example of a thing that it doesn't serve us well. Previously, it did yes. in our evolution right. and at the lower levels of the Maslow's Pyramid. Mm-hmm. But now that in cases where those lower level needs are met, imagining getting bitten by things is less useful. Yeah. And oftentimes, it's much more useful to err pretty hard on the other side. Yes. Yeah, I think so too. And I don't know if it's appropriate to say here, but I think that's a big part of what this training is. I think the training that Gotama, at least the part that I'm really focusing on, is this ability to recognize, ah, negativity bias. Put that aside. Yeah. Yeah. Let our awareness be a little more balanced. One place we particularly do this when we're doing body scans, this pay attention to your toes, pay attention to your feet, pay attention to your legs. We'll sometimes talk about how you might have an itch while you are sitting in meditation and your whole body and mind is like, deal with this. And what we are learning to do is to hold that in a greater context. Yes, there's an itch on my face, but the rest of my body feels pretty comfortable right now. And being able to recognize what a small part of our entire experience that discomfort is. And, and the itch is not a, it's not a threat. Right. To you, the, yeah. the itch will not. Yes, it will itch. Yes, but your nose will not drop off of your face. <laughs> I'm wondering about one other thing I had thought to say here. So we're talking about the three characteristics of human experience, and again, in my opinion, this should actually be survival bias, not just negativity bias. Mm. Because something that is we're, it a translation issue or a, a bigger? It's a bigger. It's a bigger thing. When Gotama was practicing, he didn't know about evolution. So I'm not saying that what he said was wrong, but when I look at human experience, knowing what I do about brain function, I think it would be more correct to say we have survival bias. So, so many of our activities are not just negativity bias, not just we notice the bad stuff, but we are trying to improve our status in our community in order to get our genes into the next generation. We have all these weird behaviors. My understanding of how our brains work suggests that survival bias is actually a better way to talk and think about our experience as humans. Hmm. However, for the Dharma community, that feels like too big of a step. I don't know that it would be skillful for me to push the agenda of letting go of negativity bias or dukkha or suffering altogether and saying, nope, put that aside. The bigger issue here is survival bias. I'm actually torn about this because on the one hand, that's what I think it should be. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I want to, you know, make some concessions to the community with which I have have friends. Yeah. (laughs) I like, I like people. It's good for your survival. Yes. Right. See that. Okay. Perfect example. That's exactly what I'm talking about. We worry about having friends because of survival bias. Yeah. And so, so. wants to bite us. Our friends can help us. <laughs> With any luck. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Do you have anything to say about that? I, that's all I have to say about it. The nice thing about suffering and 
negativity bias as translations Mm -hmm. of dukkha is that they're quite direct in their meaning. You can easily perceive what the thing is and you can directly apply the the thing. Mm, Yep. Whereas survival bias requires a few more steps. For example, yeah, it's survival bias, but it's for surviving at a previous time in the evolution (laughs) and we've evolved past that. And so now it's these first world problems that we're trying to survive and our survival bias doesn't help us with that. So it's not helping us to survive anymore. Right. Whereas negativity bias, we're, we're still seeing this negativity. Yeah. Whatever our problems are, we're still like latching onto those. So for me, I guess in my understanding that I have today, I find negativity bias of the three translations, mm-hmm. suffering, negativity bias, and survival bias. I find that negativity bias is the most useful one for me. Yeah. I agree with you, particularly in that many people come to the teachings of Gotama or Buddhism or any religion, frankly, because they have, because something's wrong. Mm-hmm. In MBSR classes, the people for whom everything is going fine often don't stick around. Okay. It's the people who have this, something isn't right, something I want, something different, something sure. needs to change. That is often for religions of all stripe where you get folks in. That's their survival bias, right? <laughs> Things are not great. Let's fix, let's change something. Let's, right. let's make some moves. But it is that negativity aspect, that dukkha, that suffering mm-hmm. that has brought them. Mm-hmm. It's not their joy in right. a lot of cases that brings them in the door. If things are going fine, then keep it the same. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's an interesting point. Of course, I also have the, you know, but I don't think that's the thing. So yeah, I'm a little torn. But I do agree with you that from a practical standpoint, negativity bias may be the thing that's most useful to talk about. Fair enough. Now the options are on the table. Yeah. And let's use them as they're pertinent. Ready for the third one? Here we go. Okay, so the third one... The this is the one that's confusing to me. <laughs> I don't think it will be once we talk about it a little okay, bit. I think great. it'll be quite clear. I hope it'll be quite clear. Mm-hmm. So the third one is the Pali word is anatta. It's often translated as not self. Some people say no self. Peacock says it can also be no fixed self, mm. but not no self. We don't want no self. It's not that you don't have a self. As you had mentioned... It's that tying back into the first aspect, that there's nothing essential. There's no fixed essentialness. I'm wondering how much about Peacock's talk to bring up. He he was talking about Brahmanism and Hinduism and the Upanishads. And I, it's a two-hour talk. Yeah, it's a two-hour talk. So not all of it. <laughs> and again, as we talked about earlier, it's not about teaching you Buddhism. So I think mm-hmm. that part can be put aside it may be more interesting to talk about how Western philosophy handles this issue. David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, he said, for my part, I'm quoting, for my part, when I enter most intimately into what I call myself, I always stumble on some particular perception or other of heat or cold, light or shade, love or hatred, pain or pleasure. So he's saying, when I start to pay attention to myself, I notice a perception. Then he says, I never catch myself at any time without a perception, and I can never observe anything but the perception, Mm. right? The way that Gotama talks about this idea of not self, have you ever had a banana tree? Banana tree. 
like a like, tree that has bananas that on grows it. grows bananas? It grows bananas, yeah. I've seen them. I, I don't I don't know. I haven't okay. uh, grown one myself. So you know if you chop down a maple, you've got this core, this heartwood in the center of mm. the wood? Yep. A banana tree is basically just a bunch of leaves, and if you peel all the leaves away, it's leaves all the way down. Oh. There's no heartwood. And so Gotama okay. talks about the self like this. He says it's just... It's like a banana tree. There's not like a seed or a core or right, it's there's just nothing. layers. There's just layers and layers. And that's what he talks about when he's talking about this anatta concept. Mm-hmm. He says there's no fixed essence to a person or frankly to anything, which we can talk about the science about that in a minute. If we look at who I was when I was born, I was, I was one way and then I changed and I changed and now I'm this way and I'm going to keep changing and I'm going to be different later. But there's no fixed essence that I can say Shannon is this. Does that make sense? Things are trajectories through time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Patterns. Patterns, collections of energy. Mm -hmm. There's not a pause button. Yeah. It can be pressed. Do you remember the other day I said, nouns are verbs moving very slowly. Mm. This is the concept that I was talking about this idea that we have this idea of nouns, this computer, banana, banana. But what is a banana? Is a banana a tree? Is a banana a tree when it's hanging on the tree? At what point does it become a banana? Is it a banana when it's a flower that has been pollinated? And then after I eat it, is it still a banana or is it a Shannon? Yeah. That's interesting. (laughs) One thing that you had said in the beginning was, isn't no fixed self, isn't that obvious given everything is changing? And in line with what you had said about dukkha, actually, it's very practical to have a way of working with negativity bias, to have a way of working with suffering. I think the reason that this is highlighted separately is that it's very helpful to have a way to think about the self because it's so easy to say, everything's changing. Everything except me is changing. Yeah. And so I think that's why it's highlighted as its own a specific example. Specific example of everything changing. Yeah. That's my take on it. That seems reasonable. Peacock says something really interesting that I hadn't thought about before. He says, what is this not self? Mm-hmm. And then he says, that's the good news. Because... Wait a minute. Okay. What, what is this not self? That's anatta. That's this not fixed self. Oh, what now is, I got it. So he says, what is this not self? And he says, that's the good news. Because it means that whatever is bad and seemingly intractable in your life or your personality, that too is impermanent. That can change. Interesting. Yeah. So whatever it is, it can change. Mm -hmm. That's hopeful. Yeah, there's hope in that. Yeah. One of the characters in the discourses, the suttas, is a guy who killed, I don't know, he had like a thousand fingers that he wore on a necklace around his neck. He killed a bunch of people. Oh, and he took their fingers. And he took their fingers for each person that he killed. Yeah. And he ended up turning into a bhikkhu. He ended up becoming a follower of Gotama. And people were like, how could that be? He did all this stuff. And Gotama said, because there's no fixed self. That's gone. He's not doing that anymore. Now he's a bhikkhu. There are some books about how to be a writer. Stephen King's got one, the Mm -hmm. the various others. And it's a point that they make too every day choose to be a writer yeah sit down yeah and not only choose what you want to be but you can choose what you don't want to be Mm -hmm. 
there's a lot of changes that are going on in my life as I'm starting to explore the Dharma we talked about in the last episode in the ethics about how how my reaction to the world is changing and how I decide this is the type of behavior that I want to exhibit. Hmm. And yeah, it can change. Thank goodness. Imagine if we were all still five. <laughs> but at the same time, the brain science tells us that, that patterns are powerful. Powerful. Creating habits is yes. powerful. And it takes some time. Yes. To make those changes. There are maybe there are like whirlpools mm-hmm. in a stream. You can see them behind rocks. And once they form, they can be a stable pattern. Yes. They can be perturbed if you drop a big enough uh, rock or leaf <laughs> or something in there. They can if you be meditate hard enough. Yeah, but they also are stable to small perturbations. The flow moving around. And so it gives us the idea that we can make changes. It's not a trivial thing to do always. Right. Our survival bias yeah. is, is sometimes working for us, sometimes working against the change that we might want to make. Yeah. Something else that Peacock says in this talk is we're going to change anyway. We are, we, we are changing. We are changing all the time and we're going to change in the future. Continue changing. So why not make a decision about what direction that's going in? Yeah. Thanks for explaining these. I, I get them now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One more thing that recently came up live in a conversation that I was having with somebody else. I'm part of a Bodhi College community group. Somehow we got on the topic of anatta in a conversation in a breakout group, me and yeah. another practitioner. We, we were talking about how so much of Gotama's teaching is really practical and useful. It's not abstract. Much of his teaching was to plain people, to peasants, to farmers. And so he taught on this really basic level and it's become abstracted and it's become metaphysicalized. The intellectuals got a hold of it. Sure. Yeah. The intellectuals got a hold of it. And this person was saying that they were having trouble understanding this concept of anatta, not self and having trouble knowing what to do about it. And this may not be interesting for you, Jeff, but I wanted to bring it up because this has been helpful for me and it may be helpful to listeners. When Gotama in the discourses in the suttas talks about anatta, he often uses a particular phrase. He says, this is not me, this is not mine, this I am not. So whenever we think... Say, say one more time. Yeah. This is not me, this is not mine, this I am not. What uh, might he be referring to? Then? Yeah maybe a psychological condition. I am sad. Mm. I am not always sad. This is not me. This sadness is not me. I'm not sad all the way down. It's not mine. I don't own sadness. Sadness is just a thing that's happening. And this sadness is not myself. Again, it's not the core of who I am. Yeah, it's not essential. Or an identity. I used to identify as being a helicopter pilot, Mm. but that was not the core of who I am. That was not a fixed essence. I wasn't always a helicopter pilot. Sometimes I was some a people, student. Some people like this, though. Some people like this thing. Some people are tempted to, once a helicopter pilot, always a helicopter pilot. And it's really annoying. Well, there's some safety there. <laughs> I think it is maybe the reason that yes. they, they feel comfortable there. They feel safe. It's their survival bias. It's maybe their survival bias. That's kicking in. It, they have a sense it gives them maybe an elevated social position. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But is it true? after you've stopped flying helicopters, are you a helicopter pilot anymore? I would argue, I would say there's some room for argument that you're not anymore. After you've stopped writing, are you a writer? Yeah. We can really cling to these identities. I am a Democrat. I am a Republican. But this ability to say, this is not me. This is not mine. This I am not. And using that 
triple phrase for those of us who are really into using phrases of Gotama's. <laughs> Will we expect to find a t-shirt on the Yadama PhD <laughs> web store? That's a brilliant idea. Right in, right in listeners. I am not this t-shirt. This t-shirt is not me. What's the other one? I, this t-shirt I am not. not myself. Yeah. Yeah. I found this little triple phrase to be very helpful, especially when I'm doing a thing that I don't like about myself. When I'm feeling a, way, a particular way, maybe I'm ruminating about something and I can't seem to let it go. It has been very helpful. It's so a I'm bringing little that mantra. Up. Yeah, it's a helpful little mantra to help me let go of some of these attachments and identifications that don't serve. Mm-hmm. So take what's useful and leave the rest. We might have to print the t-shirt upside down so you could look down and- <laughs> And then read it. Or backwards weird. so you could look in a mirror. Look in a maybe? mirror. All right. In summary, Gotama said that there were three characteristics of human existence. First, that everything in our experience changes, that our experience is of impermanence. Second, that our experience is permeated by negativity bias. And third, that there is no essential nature of ourselves or of anyone or anything else. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. There you have it. Yeah. Is there anything else that this brings up for you? Anything in your experience? This seems particularly useful to me. How so? Well, in my life, these are things that are useful to me at, at this point in time in particular because I'm, I'm contemplating a job change. A company I was speaking with about employment there, it was interesting because they had envisioned that I might occupy a different role at that company right. than I had thought I would envision. I, to this point, have identified myself as engineer. Mm-hmm. Engineers traditionally do not speak to other people. They're locked, <laughs> they're locked in the basement somewhere. They're not good at it sometimes. The stereotype is not of skillful communication. Right. And so this company wants me to do quite a bit of communication. Okay. Speaking with customers, determining what they want, formulating that in a way that the engineering team can create the thing that's needed communication between many groups going in a few directions. Yeah. Uh, I might be doing things like making a podcast. Hey. For example, it's good that you blaze the trail there. <laughs> I might be making some videos. You need a co-host? This. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. And so this is, is a thing that I have in fact been doing Okay. At my, at my current position, but it was very interesting to think about the idea of, ah, my identity has been okay. this other thing. Yeah. And the identity has been engineer and now may become communications or product manager. Or, or just the idea of, let's not identify too strongly with any one thing. Ooh, let's, yeah. be, let's be a person moving through the world doing interesting things. Yes. And they'll be called different things at different times. And, Beautiful. Um, so that's an interesting thing. It just happened the other day. Wow. Uh, so I'm, I'm getting my head around it. Okay. And so these ideas really land at a time when they're very directly useful. Thanks. Awesome. That makes me very happy. The Dharma is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and is useful for everyday problems like this, everyday experiences. Exactly. That is that part. Oh, man, that part is so important to me. Everyday experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, rad. Anything else? Thanks. Yeah. So, listeners... If you'd like to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at dharmaphd.com. There'll be a website link in the show notes where you can get the transcript of and links to John Peacock's two-hour amazing talk that you should totally go and listen. 
There'll also be a transcript of this episode. And I'll also include a link to Maslow's hierarchy that we've talked about. And this link will include the final sixth apex. If you don't know about the sixth apex. Would you care to give us a teaser? No. No. Click on the link link and you'll see it. (laughs) What else did we talk about? Anything else? Listeners, if you want any of these key phrases on a (laughs) t-shirt, don't hesitate to write in. I have really enjoyed this talk and I'm super glad that you find something helpful here. That's the thing I really care about is offering ideas and ways to think about how to live a life of human flourishing. So I'm really happy. It'd be interesting to hear from listeners too. If maybe if they're comfortable uh, sharing their stories with other people or, or just with us privately, it'd, it'd be interesting to hear how listeners are able to apply these ideas in their own lives in the same way that I was able to in something that happened just the other day. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jeff, for being my co-host. It's thank a pleasure you to be here. to our listeners. May you be well. Hi. Hello. <laughs> oh, hey. 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 Hi. Hello. <laughs> I'll talk about why I've chosen that translation. <laughs> I'm yawning over here, but I'm holding it in poorly. And uh, so I'm making really funny faces. And Shannon's trying to, to tell us some serious uh, characteristics. <laughs> no, but I'm listening, though. The Tilakana. Or Tila Kanna, mm. depending on. <laughs> I remember. I remember your excellent accent work. That Un- word, undimmed. excellent. That's yeah. <laughs> oh, it's enthusiastic. I think enthusiastic is a yeah. reasonable way to describe my poly accent. Mm-hmm. Who reads that thing on the front of ambulances? Of course, it's an ambulance. The lights are on. It's very loud. What did you think it was? <laughs> it's ambulancing. Because it's, yeah, cha- it's changing. Because they're really ambulancing pretty hard. Most of those ambulances, they're yeah. red and flashing. Because and... later they might be van lifing. Hmm, that's a good point. Yeah, what happens to an ambulance, ambulance after it retires? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The Dharma is everywhere. It's all the Dharma us. is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Even ambulances are changing. <laughs> <laughs>